Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Thomas Oakes. I have been a covenant partner for about a year, but I've been coming here for two. Um, and I have the honor of reading scripture this morning. This week, we are continuing our study of the book of Mark, continuing in chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Bob Fuller. I'm the senior pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. I don't get to be in here nearly as often as I would like, but I, I tell you what, it is always good to be back here and to see you all, especially on a weekend like this. You know, this is a weekend that, that is full of meaning for all of us in one way or another, um, whether it is because of something personal happening in your own life or just remembering the events of... 20 years ago. This is one of those weekends that I hope we will never forget, one of those events we will never forget as we look back on 9-11. And I, I'm just going to take a moment to just comment on that for a second. You know, whenever I look at footage of the events of that day, one of the things that always strikes me is that in the midst of all the turmoil and the fire and the twisted steel and everything like that, the, the impression that stands out in my mind, more than anything else, are those men, those women, those firefighters, those policemen, those first responders, those utility workers of every type who were not running out of the Twin Towers, but who were running into them. You know, that, that will stick with me forever. I think that for, for people who were alive during that time or who were uh, alive and aware at that time, that is a day we will never forget. And so that's one of those impressions that, that will be with me for as long as I live. And, and one of the things that I have always wondered is what is it that God puts in some people that makes them run into a burning building as opposed to running away from it? What is it about them? What is that courage? What is that, what is that special power, that, 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 je ne sais quoi, that X factor that, that only God can put into a person that makes them different. Well, I think that it is something that is not necessarily as far off from us as we think. I think that there is a gift of uncommon courage that God gives to people in extraordinary times because he wants them to represent him. 
And I'm, I've always been drawn to this passage from Malachi chapter 3. It's verse 18. In Malachi 3.18, the Lord said, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Here's how the New Revised Standard Version says it. It says, Then once more you shall see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. I think the, the key critical factor for every one of those men and women who ran into the Twin Towers on 9-11 was that they were not thinking about themselves. They were thinking about the people inside that building. They cared more about the people inside than those who were, who were running, than they cared for themselves. And I think that that's why we see the difference. We see that extraordinary difference. And we see that in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who, who cared more about us than he did about himself when he gave his own body and blood on the cross for our sins. I don't know about you, but for those of us who remember not just 9-11, but 9-12, 2001, that was a time of extraordinary unity in this country. What we saw on September 11th and for the days after that drew us together. And one of the things I want to ask today is, why are we so divided now? What is it about today that makes our culture wars so vicious, that makes our, our, our society so fractured, our politics so broken? Why is all that happening? As I was really thinking about that this weekend, I started thinking back, what, when did that start? When did we go from being so united to being so divided? And you know what it was? I think it's when I think it's when people started to exploit 9-11, when they started to manipulate it, when they started to leverage it for other purposes. I remember hearing people, pastors, on the right and the left, on the right they were saying, this is God's judgment on our country for our cultural sins. And on the left they were saying, this is God punishing the United States for our injustice in the world. The chickens have come home to roost was a line that I remember. But it all had to do with people leveraging their own agendas on the back of this crisis and on the backs of all those people, whether they were in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, or Washington, D.C., or New York, who died that day. What's different about the people who ran into that building was that they were not leveraging any agenda. They were not there for anybody but the people who were in that building. They were the ones who were ready to bear their cross who were ready to give their lives for someone else. That is the thing that always unifies us, that always inspires us. Yes, people may get whooped up, they may get fired up, they may get, they may get angried up by people leveraging a crisis for their own ends. But what truly unites us is when we come together and we realize it's not about me, it's not about us, it's about giving our lives for one another. What makes us different is when we stop seeing the differences and we start saying, my life is not my own. It belongs to God, and therefore I'm going to give it for his sake. And that's what they and all those who've served since that time and before then have done. As I've been looking at, at the Bible over the last few 
weeks trying to find some solace in a very dis- divided time, I keep going back to the Lamentations. Boy, always fun, Bob. You're, you're always good. Lamentations. <laughs> always bringing out the sunlight. But you know what? There is a crack in the Lamentations. This ray of hope that comes in. And as dark as things were on 9-11, there was still a brightness that came from our unity. And as dark as things are right now, there is still a brightness that comes from this truth. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that today we may come into your house and hear be unified, that here any differences that separate us are, are washed away by the blood of your Son. We thank you, O oh God, that you have called us to be your people, that we may bring glory to your name. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in your Son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Sorry, that was not the sermon. You're like, wow, Bob, that was really short. That's new. (laughs) Stick with that plan. Nope. (laughs) Not a thing. Uh, How many of you all were at the women's conference this weekend? How many of you were there? Let's, yeah, give it a cheer. That was awesome. Remember, men's ministry, our standard is not to be the best men's ministry in town. Our men's ministry goal is to be as good as the women's ministry here. And they had an extraordinary time of growth. It was called the Women of Faith Conference. And, and we're so glad that, that everybody who was able to participate, participated. We hope that in the future, if you weren't able to be there, that you'll be there. But the Women of Faith is, is a theme that, that I think is going to come forward a little bit today. Because we're going to be talking about, and you heard Thomas read, about a woman of extraordinary faith. And not just a faith that was sort of professed, but a faith that was challenged and proven. Not just a faith that was professed, but a faith that was proven. So let's start and let's take a look at Mark chapter 7. But let me start with with this. My mother-in-law is one of those people who lives by the motto, it never hurts to ask. The worst thing they can say is no. Well, I am the exact opposite of that. It does hurt to ask. And I know that it can be a lot worse than just no. How dare you ask for that? Who do you think you are? Are you just stupid? Are you just arrogant? That's the dumbest question I have ever heard. It can hurt to ask sometimes. You know what? I believe that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who don't identify two types of people in the world and those who do. No, I'm just kidding. Um, There are two types of people in the world. There are those who are willing to ask for an upgrade of their seat assignment on an airplane and those who will not. I am one of those who won't, as you can probably guess. You know, whenever I used to fly, at least in the old days, before I discovered that beautiful airline called Southwest, Whenever I got my seat assignment, no matter what it was, I just took it. 
I just took it. I am such a staunch Calvinist that I just assume that even if I have a really crummy seat, then that is part of God's providential plan for the universe, and it's just my turn. That's just the way it is, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Morgan, my wife, is not like that. One time we were flying home from visiting her parents and one of our flights got canceled and we were going to be rerouted all over the country and we had to get, we had to hustle to get on a different flight so that we could get home. And you know what? I was just glad that we got on the flight, but then Morgan saw that we had separate terrible middle seats for this long flight all the way across the country. And she said, oh, you know, I'm just going to go up to the ticket agent and see if I can get a seat change. I'm like, no, we just barely got onto this plane. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Just take it. You're married to a Calvinist. You're married Presbyterian. Just this is your lot. <laughs> it's predestined. But she went up. And you know what? They, they turned her down. I'll tell you what happened. It, I, this is not actually in my script, Bob. You're gonna, um, I'll tell you what happened because it's really fun. So we got onto the plane and we were walking down the aisle and this really nice young man heard us talking and he saw that, that we were going to get split up. And so he, he stood up and he said, he said to me, he said, he said, don't worry. He said, you can sit next to her. I'll just go back to the back and I'll sit in your seat. I said, oh, really? Well, thank you. It's, it's 18J or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's not an 8J. It's not a J on the plane. Um, it wasn't an international flight flight. Um, it's 18E, whatever. And it's, it's down there at the other end of the plane. He says, he says, no problem. Well, then he got up. He starts moving down the plane. I start sliding in, putting my stuff in the overhead bin. And he turns around, and he looks at me and I kind of look and I'm close enough that I can see what 18E is. And there are these two guys who must have been pro wrestlers. And both of them were taking up 125% of their own seat. And he had to sit between them. And he looked back at me plaintively. And I thought, that's what happens when you try to change your seats. <laughs> Even if you're being nice. I was, I was not a good Calvinist that day. I just went, I went ahead and let him do it. Um, that's a side note. But I'm not one of those people. I don't, I don't like to ask. I don't, you know, but, but it is so nice when you ask and, and people do respond positively. You know, have you ever asked someone for a favor and maybe you thought it was a long shot? But you decided to ask anyway because, hey, the worst thing that they can say is no. Well, today Thomas read a story about a woman who came to Jesus with an urgent plea. She went to Jesus with a serious but simple request. Please free my daughter from an evil demonic power that is enslaving her. I mean, and why not ask for this? I mean, after all, I mean... There had one time been this, in, uh, there one time in history been this time when, when a Jewish prophet named Elijah, who came to this land to the nearby town of Zarephath, had come and raised a poor widow's son from the dead. That happened in 1 Kings 17. And so she thought to herself, this might be my only chance. Here was this famous, powerful Jewish prophet and teacher who had, who had happened to be in her town. This was her chance, and she might as well ask. I mean, after all, the worst he can say is no, right? It's the worst he can say. Well, let's look at the story again. Jesus was in the region of Tyre. He was getting pretty famous, and the crowds were starting to get so big and persistent that it seemed that he and the disciples couldn't get away. And so he left the ancient boundaries of Galilee and Palestine and went all the way to the region of Tyre and Sidon in what we would now call Lebanon. Now, this was a strange choice, 
That's a choice that I'm sure made his disciples nervous because Tyre, or modern Lebanon, which lay directly west and north of Galilee, was a Gentile region with a long history of antagonism toward Israel. They were once allies, but then they became competitors. And it was known as a thoroughgoing pagan country. It had always been a country of idol worshipers, witchcraft, and superstition. You know, no, no doubt there were, there were pagans in Palestine. They lived in every city, in every neighborhood, even might live right next door to you. And Jesus could assume that there were always pagans among his Jewish audiences. But nevertheless, going to Tyre meant going to the land of pagans. He was moving into what the Jews would have considered real pagan-controlled territory. But if you're crossing the border into pagan territory, who would you expect to meet? Pagans, right? Places to be crawling with them. One should not be surprised to meet Gentiles, non-Jews, and pagans in a place like that. And so while Jesus and his disciples were trying to find a quiet place to meet, while they were trying to rest and recharge away from the overwhelming crowds, this woman... This mother came to Jesus with a desperate request. This mother came up and begged Jesus to heal her daughter who was possessed by an evil spirit. The Bible says a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. What does it mean to be possessed? Whenever we hear about this sort of thing in Bible stories, we tend to pass over this point with, with what I think is too casual an attitude. We don't take it seriously. and We don't treat this little girl's condition like it's a serious condition. We treat it like some quaint or antiquated little nuisance or malady, like, like she's got a bad cough or like, like she's got, you know, maybe she's cursing a lot or, or there's, maybe she's got a weird itch like right here on her shoulder or something like that. But, but we don't treat it seriously enough. When the Bible says that someone is possessed, it's telling us that this person is enslaved, that they are controlled, that they are tortured by forces so weird and so powerful and so malevolent that we can't even understand them. I mean, imagine if your child was taken from you, was kidnapped, chained up, put on an auction block, Sold to a stranger who could beat her, abuse her, violate her at will, break her, force her into addiction, who would terrorize her to do his will, to shame her, to starve her, to punish her, and then sell her, only to be sold again and again and again, trafficked until until her soul was ruined and her body broken. That's what possession is. It's the spiritual, demonic, supernatural equivalent of human trafficking. This woman came to Jesus with a heartbreaking problem, as had hundreds before her, a problem that only he could help. I mean, after all, who could refuse that? And she came and fell down at his feet, She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She was so desperate that she literally threw herself at his feet. But there was an issue. She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. 
That is, she was a Gentile. That means that she was not a Jew, not one of God's covenant people. Strike one. She was a foreigner. She wasn't from Palestine. She was from a different country with a different nationality. Strike two. And she was a pagan. Strike three. And she had the nerve to come to the Messiah, the Savior of Israel for help? And listen to what Jesus said to her. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you don't need a degree in biblical studies or theology to know that that was rude. Let's call it what it is. It's callous. It's prejudiced. It's xenophobic. It's insulting. It's humiliating. And whether the Lord meant it that way or not, that is how it came across. You know, I'm somebody who gets judged pretty often on what people hear me say, not just what I intend to say. And I know that that happens a lot. Here she was. She came to Jesus. And you know what? A simple no would have sufficed. But I don't know about you, but that was a lot worse than a no. That was not just no. That was, well, you know. He called her. He called her people. And most pointedly, he called her possessed daughter dogs. I can't believe he just said that. But I want you to listen to her response. She just got slapped in the face. Then she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This issue with her daughter is so serious. She doesn't even care that she's begging a foreigner for help. And make no mistake, she was not demanding. She was begging. There is no sense of entitlement here. This is desperation. But she didn't lose her dignity either. So deep and so convicting was her love for her daughter that she answered Jesus' rudeness with the argument that he has more than enough power and more than enough love to save his own people and even still to save her daughter. More than enough power, more than enough love to spill over to her daughter and maybe even her own people. And then it's as if Jesus turned on a dime and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed. And the demon gone. Gone is the callousness. Gone is the prejudice. Gone is the xenophobia. Gone is the insult. Gone is the humiliation. All of that is gone and replaced with honor, with respect, with dignity, 
and with grace. And most importantly, for her, gone is the demon. Jesus didn't even have to go to her. And her daughter is free. Her life is forever free because of her mother's trust in Jesus Christ. Now, there are two major themes in this story. The first is the mission of Jesus. And the second is the authenticity of faith. The first theme is about the scope of God's plan for the restoration of the world. Mark tells us that this story now, excuse me, Mark tells us this story so that we can see that the mission field of Jesus is bigger than the field of our vision. Some people have argued that Jesus and his disciples went to Tyre just to recharge, just to regroup. And while that may be true in part, there's another reason. Jesus was going to reset the table of his mission. This is the first and only time that Jesus left the country to take the truth of God into Gentile, pagan, non-Jewish land. Certainly there were times that he had preached to non-Jews and he had healed them, but they had always come to him. They have been Gentiles living in or near ancient Israel for centuries. But by actually going to Sidon, going to Tyre, Jesus was making a bold move onto a new frontier, into a new wilderness. Jesus went to Lebanon, and when he went to Lebanon, he overturned the faulty understanding of Messiah to his own people, even to the disciples. The Messiah was supposed to be the, to be the Messiah who would ordain, who was ordained to expel and subdue the Gentiles, not to visit and embrace them. As J.R. Edwards puts it, in journeying to the vicinity of Tyre, and particularly in receiving this Syrophoenician woman, Jesus expands the scope of his ministry beyond anything conceivable of the Messiah. From a socio-religious perspective, Jesus' visit to Tyre universalizes the concept of Messiah in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way that entirely stands unprecedented in Judaism. Jesus was showing them and us the scope of God's plan. Jesus' ministry is to people both near and far, both near at hand and over the line. No category of people, Gentile, foreigner, pagan, is beyond the mission of Jesus. Yes, Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of God's grace to God's people first. He was born and he did 99% of his ministry among the Jewish people. But the mission of Jesus was not just a mission to the Jews, not just a mission to his own people. It was a mission to the world. Yes, Jesus said Israel first, but he did not say Israel first and only. And there's a big difference. As Paul said in the opening words of Romans, this gospel, this good news is for the Jew first and then for the Greek, for the Gentile. So here's Jesus showing us that the mission field of God is bigger than our field of vision. And we need to know this. We cannot follow the mission of Jesus without following Jesus on his mission. We have to go where he goes, beyond the borders, over the lines. 
Our vision is so limited. And so we need to see that Jesus went to people, not just his own people, not just people like us, but to the people on the edge and even over the edge. Second, Jesus wanted to show them and he wanted to show us what authentic faith looks like. Why did Jesus act like this to this woman? Why was he so seemingly rude to her at first? I believe it was a test. It was a test of her faith. Sometimes a test is an examination to find out how much you know, but sometimes a test is a push to get you to push back, to prove how far you're willing to go. And Jesus pushed her because he wanted her to push back. In this case, Jesus was pushing her so that she would dig deep and push herself. The point of this test was to draw out the deepest in her. The one, that one more second underwater, that one more plate on the weight bench, that one more lap, that one more mile to prove that there's more in her, in this case, more faith than even she expected. She might have approached Jesus as a hopeful optimist, but she went away a transformed and convicted disciple. And there she was, a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, a foreigner, putting it all out there, putting it all on the line. And what we should understand is a living prayer. You know what prayer is? People say prayer is a conversation with God. It's asking God for something. You know, no, first and foremost, prayer is a gut check. Prayer is one of those times when we put everything that we say we believe on the line. Because when you pray, you have to say, God, I believe that you're real. God, I believe that you really do have the power to make a difference in my life. God, I really do believe that you care. And we really do say, God, I trust you. I can't do it on my own. I can't do this by myself. I need you. Prayer puts it all on the line. And that's what she did. And I think that Jesus pushed her because he wanted her to push back. But he also wanted to push her because he wanted the disciples to see how much faith she had. He wanted to prove to the disciples that an outsider's faith, a foreigner's faith, a Gentile's faith was every bit as strong as somebody who had grown up knowing the covenant promises of God their entire life. He wanted them to see what a real faith looks like. And even when Jesus rebuffed her, she answered Jesus with the argument that he has more than enough power and more than enough, more than enough love, not only to save his own people, but to save her people and even save her daughter. More than enough power and love to spill over to her and revolutionize people's lives. This mother put everything on the line and surrendered to Jesus Christ. And what happened? Her test became her testimony. And Jesus confirmed her statement of faith. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has lost your daughter. 
That's authentic faith. Betting your life and everything you have and everything you are on the power and love of Jesus Christ. But you know what? This isn't just a test for her. This was a test for the disciples. And it's a test for us. We need to ask ourselves, how are we limiting the mission of Jesus by our limited field of vision? How would you have responded to the plea of this pagan Gentile foreign woman? You know, the disciples, at least in Mark's version of the story, sat silent during this whole episode. I mean, you can just imagine them staring at the ground, shuffling their feet during this whole awkward exchange. Dang, Jesus, did you really say that? Whew, I'm not... You kind of look at the look at these walls. We need to paint this area over here. What if what if you were in the disciples' shoes? Would you have turned her away because she's not one of us? Would you say this is just about us first and only? Or can we broaden the horizon of our vision to see the people that Jesus sees? So that's what if we were in their shoes. What if you were in her shoes? What if we were in her shoes? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust him enough to pray like that? I know that right now, you have a situation in your life. You have a person in your life that is enslaved, that is broken, that is hurting, that is lost. That person may be you. Are you praying like that? Would you stand and pray, praying like nothing else mattered? Or would you give up with less effort? A good friend of mine, Dr. David Singh, says that when we pray, we have to pray like crazy. What that means is that we have to pray like we really believe this stuff. When we pray for our country, when we pray for the people we love, when we pray for our city, we have to pray like we really believe that the Lord can do something and that he will do something. We don't pray like God owes us something. We don't pray like it doesn't really matter. We pray like nothing else matters. And we don't back off. Just because God doesn't doesn't answer our prayers in our way or in our timing. Don't give up. Don't be like me on an airplane, too afraid to ask, too afraid to be let down or rebuffed. Don't let your pride get in the way. Because our problem is not that we ask too much. Our problem is that we are satisfied with too little. Ask, beg, stand, throw it all on the ground before him. Because when the king doesn't give us exactly what we ask for, it's because he is pushing us to ask for something more and something better. Come to Jesus, claiming nothing in your hands, but expecting everything because he is good and he is God. We have to pray like even the scraps from his table are powerful enough to change our lives and to change the world now and forever, even for dogs like us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, 
you have called us to pray. But Lord, sometimes I feel like we don't feel the pushback. We don't, we don't feel you pushing against us. We don't feel your challenge, your test, pushing us to deeper faith, pushing us to deeper endurance, pushing us to deeper trust. Lord, help us to just lay it on the line so that we can feel the true push, so that we can feel that gut check. Lord, take away from our lives faithless prayers. Give us the faith of this woman of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.